But an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Get up and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert road. So he got up and went, and there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure, and he came to Jerusalem to worship. And he was returning, sitting in a chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. Then the Spirit said to Philip, Go up and join the chariot. Philip ran and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and said, Do you understand what you're reading? And he said, Well, how could I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and to sit with him. Now the passage of Scripture which he was reading was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter and as a lamb before his shears is silent. So he does not open his mouth. In humiliation, his judgment was taken away. Who will relate his generation? For his life is removed from the earth. The eunuch answered Philip and said, Please tell me, of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or of someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth. And beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. We'll open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 52, and we will be beginning in verse 13 and focusing in Isaiah 53. There is no doubt uh, that this passage of Scripture points forward to Jesus, and the earliest Christians viewed it this way. This is the text that Philip uses in order to preach Jesus to the Ethiopian eunuch, and hopefully we will get into this uh, and make it come alive. Most of our lessons this this week uh, have been focused in Isaiah one through thirty nine. All of them up until this point, and we have talked about the the, the main question of Isaiah one through thirty nine: Who are you going to trust in? Who are you going to rely upon? But really the second major section of the book is chapters 40 through 66. And in Isaiah 39, uh, Isaiah prophesies that the people are going to go into Babylonian captivity. And so Isaiah 40 through 66 take on a different tone than we have seen in Isaiah 1 through 39. Isaiah 40 through 66, it is written, uh, Isaiah is prophesying about 150 years before they go into captivity, but it's written to give the people comfort for when they do go into captivity. And he promises the people, he promises the people that they will return. But uh, the prophet looks forward to a day. Not just when they return from captivity, but when God deals with the problems that sent them into captivity. When God deals with the problems of sin and death. <clears throat> and when you look at Isaiah 51, in Isaiah 51, starting in verse 17, God is depicted as giving the nation of Judah the cup of his wrath. And this is common biblical language as God's wrath is poured out upon people. He gives them the cup, gives the wicked the cup, and forces them to drink it down. And so now the cup has come to Judah. Now Judah and Jerusalem will experience the wrath of God. 
And yet in Isaiah 51 and verses 21 through 23, God takes the cup out of their hand and does not fully force them to drink it down and to experience the full wrath that he has received. And in verse 7, we have the feet that proclaim good news. And in verse 10, that announce that the arm of the Lord, the same arm that worked on behalf of Israel to bring them out of Egyptian captivity, is the same arm that will work in verse 10 to provide salvation for them. And so instead of these people experiencing the wrath of God, they're going to experience the mercy of God. They're going to experience salvation. But how is this going to be possible? In what way is God going to bring salvation to his people? How is he going to accomplish this? And thus, we are introduced to the servant in Isaiah 52 in verse 13. Someone that honestly we have been introduced to before. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But let's, let's begin, as we've tried to do all this week, by simply reading the text. But certain 52 and verse 13. Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had not been seen, what had not been told them, they will see. And what they had not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hid their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to a slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before his shears, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? His grave was assigned with the wicked men. Yet he was with a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. 
the result of the anguish of his soul he will see and he will be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great. He will divide the booty with the strong because he poured out himself to death and he was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sins of many and interceded for the transgressors. God is going to provide salvation for his people. And through what means is he going to provide that? Through, in verse 13, my servant. Now we have seen throughout the book of Isaiah, if you read the book of Isaiah, you will see that this servant appears quite often. He appears in Isaiah 42. He appears in Isaiah 43. He appears in Isaiah 49 and 50. And again here in 52 and 53. We are familiar with this servant type language. But he hasn't been identified. Who is this servant? Who is this one in Isaiah 49 whose words will be sharper than any two-edged sword? Uh, who is this one? Well, in verse 13, I think for the first time, it is revealed exactly who it is. In verse 13, the way the servant is described is he will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Those words, those Hebrew words that are used to translate in verse 13, high and lifted up, they only appear together four times in the Old Testament. All of them in Isaiah. Isaiah 6 in verse 1, Isaiah 33 in verse 10, Isaiah 52 in verse 13, and Isaiah 57 in verse 15. In this particular case, they are used to describe the servant. In the other three cases, though, that I mentioned, they all describe the same individual. And that is God. The servant is described in the same majestic, exalted terms that God is described. The servant that God is going to send in order to deal with the sins of the people is not going to be just another prophet. No, it is going to be himself that will come and will deal with the issues and the problems of the people. And this particular servant is the one that we've really been looking for the whole book. In chapter 9, in verses 6 through 7, that famous passage of uh, uh, there will be a child born and the government will rest on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Uh, it depicts this great king who's going to come, who's going to establish a reign of righteousness and justice. You'll notice in chapter 53 and verse 11 that this servant is described as the righteous one. He is the one we've been looking for all of the book. At the beginning of Isaiah chapter 11, at the beginning of Isaiah chapter 11, we look forward to the day that this shoot from Jesse will emerge, this, this root will emerge, and, and, and he will come, and he will provide justice and righteousness for the nations. Notice how the servant is described in Isaiah 53 and verse 2. He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of parched ground. The longing of the book has been for someone to come and to deal with the problems of sin and death. And finally, this one is here. And it is God himself who will come. What will this servant look like? 
Well, his appearance is touched on twice in this section. First in verse 14. Just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. Verse 13 tells us that this servant's going to be great, high, exalted. He's described in the terms of God. He is, as in Isaiah 6 and verse 1 that we talked about earlier on in this week. And yet, his form will be marred more than any other man. That implies great suffering, right? His appearance is given to us in verse 14 to describe the great suffering that this servant will go through. But his appearance is also described in verse 2. 53 in verse 2, For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of parched ground. He had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. In other words, this, this servant didn't catch our attention. He didn't draw our eye. He didn't walk past and we say, yeah, that's the one. That's the one we're looking for. Remember when God sent a king in the Old Testament. The first king that he chooses for the people is a man by the name of Saul. And Saul is described, 1 Samuel 9 and verse 2, 1 Samuel 10 and verse 23, as head and shoulders taller than everybody else. People looked at him and said, yeah, that's our king. That's our God. That's what we're looking for. He had that kingly air, that majesty about him. And everybody said, yes, this is our God. Of course, Saul turns out to be less, less than a good king. Remember when Samuel is told, Lord, uh, the Lord tells Samuel, uh, I want you to go and I want you to anoint one of the sons of Jesse. And so he gathers them all together and he walks in 1 Samuel 16 and Eliab walks out and he says, this guy, this is who the Lord wants to be king. He looks impressive. He, he's physically impressive. Yeah, that's our God. To which the Lord responds, Samuel, don't look at the outward appearance, but look at, uh, for the Lord looks at the heart. You see, this particular servant, and I'm probably going to go back and forth describing him as servant in Jesus, as I think this passage can only be fulfilled in Jesus. But this particular servant, servant, when he comes, there's going to be no majesty that surrounds him. No greatness that we look at and we say, yeah, that's the one. As a matter of fact, Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11, he gives all of those things up. In order to come down and be human, but not just be human, but be, but be a bondservant. There's nothing that's physically impressive about this one. As a matter of fact, far from being physically impressive, far from, from our perspective being high and exalted and lifted up, in verse 3 he is described as being despised and forsaken. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, like one from whom men hid their face. He was despised and we did not esteem him. One of my favorite songs in our songbook is Hallelujah, What a Savior, number 48. And, and the song begins, man of sorrows. It's a quote from Isaiah 53 and verse 3. What a name. For the Son of God who came. 
know about you, I, I have always been from childhood a, a big fan of the superheroes. Uh, personally, always was a big fan of Batman. Um, I, I, for a while, uh, kind of pretended I was Batman. Uh, you know, kind of had that secret identity going on. Um, but um, one thing I, I want in my heroes is I want at the end of the story, right, there, there's this, there's this victory that is won. You know, there's this impressive display of strength, and yet, when the servant shows up, he's not respected, he's not appreciated. People don't stand in awe of him. People don't line up for photographs and for autographs. No, he's a man of sorrows. He is one who's acquainted with much grief. In Luke 22, in Luke 22, Jesus, hours before his arrest, makes an interesting statement to his disciples. He says in Luke 22, 28, you are these who have stood by me in my trials. In Luke chapter 24, Luke chapter 24, after the resurrection, in Luke 24 and verse 44, Jesus says this. Now he said to them, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you. That all things which are written in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Jesus says to his disciples, you, you've been with me through all of my sorrows, through all of my trials. And Jesus describes himself at the, at the end, after the resurrection, as saying he fulfilled everything written in the Psalms. Have you ever read the book of Psalms? A lot of darkness in that book. A lot of save me now, a lot of cries out to God, God, I'm in agony, I'm in sorrow. God, will you just please hear me? Will you please listen to me? If Jesus fulfills the Psalms, he is one who is acquainted with much sorrow and with much grief. We typically have exiled Jesus' suffering to the cross. He's beaten. He's put on the cross, and that's that's bad. And I, I don't want to downplay that at all. You know, the gospel accounts give a very vivid description of those things. In order for us to understand the, the horrors of sin, the horrors of what God goes through for us, all of that is true. Jesus suffers an incredible amount in his final hours. But Jesus suffers all throughout his life. People always wanted to kill Jesus. Before he was two years old, in Matthew chapter 2, Herod wants to kill him. Then Herod's son wants to kill him when he comes back from Egypt. What was your childhood like? At two years old, were you running from the leader of your nation, fearful that you would be killed? All throughout his ministry in the book of John, they want to kill him, they want to seize him, and yet his hour has not come. Jesus is consistently tempted, and oftentimes, again, we, we have sectioned off that, that temptation of those three temptations that are in Matthew 4 or Luke chapter 4. But when you read Luke chapter 4 in verses 1 through 2, he's in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights, and he's tempted the entire time. 
all 40 days and 40 nights. Luke 4 and verse 13 tells us that the devil leaves him looking for another opportune time. Hebrews 4 and verses 14 through 16 remind us he was tempted in every way that we are and yet without sin. He was constantly tempted. People constantly wanted to kill him. And we talk about false charges are, are brought against him in his trials. False charges were brought against him his whole life. They accused him of having a demon in Mark 3 and verse 22. They accused him of working for Satan in Matthew 9 and verse 34. They continually accused him of blasphemy in every gospel that charge is found against him. They accused him of being born in sin, John 8, 39 through 41. They accused him of leading people astray, John 7 and verse 12. They accused him, John 5, of breaking God's laws. They accuse him of being a sinner, John 9 and verse 24. They accuse him of being a glutton and a drunkard, Matthew 11 in verse 19. They brought false charges against him his whole life. He was rejected by his friends and his family, Mark 3, 20 through 21. His family thinks he's crazy and goes to, to bring him so that they can lock him up in this saint asylum. John 7, they make fun of his claims. And it says in John 7 and verse 5, his own brothers were believing in him. The people that we might turn to and rely on in times of trial and stress, he couldn't lean on. He goes back to his hometown in Nazareth. They mock his claims. He can't do many miracles there because of their unbelief, Mark 6. They even make fun of his hometown. Matthew 26 and verse 69, 71, and 33. They make fun of his hometown. They make fun of the way he talks. Jesus is often depicted as being frustrated and discouraged with the disciples. In Matthew 11, he rebukes the towns that refuse to repent, even though he's given them ample reason to. He talks about the generation that he is among in Matthew 12 and says they're an evil and adulterous generation. He describes his generation in Mark 9 as an unbelieving generation. The disciples are often pictured as disappointments because he continually does these things and yet they don't understand and they don't listen. There is one who understands our suffering. It is Jesus. If there is one who understands our pain, it is Jesus. Oftentimes, when trying to comfort someone, I feel so inadequate. The only thing I often know how to do when I can't relate to something that someone's going through. It's just simply point them to Jesus. Because he does understand. He was a man of sorrows. He was despised and afflicted. He knows what it's like to suffer. He understands your pain. He can relate to what you experience. He's a man of sorrows and he's acquainted for, with grief. But Isaiah takes it up one step. Not only that, not only is he a man who suffers, not only is, is he a man who experiences pain, 
But we thought in verse in verses 3 and 4, he was getting what he deserved. In verse 3, he was one from whom man hid their face. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Verse 4, surely our griefs he bore, our sorrows he carried. We'll get to that in a minute, but notice the end of the verse. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. He's getting what he deserved. We looked at this man who there was nothing impressive about and we said, you know what? He's getting exactly what he deserves. We don't know what he's done wrong, but he's getting from God what he deserves. He was stricken. He was smitten of God. He was afflicted. He's getting exactly what he deserved. And isn't that the way they treated Jesus? As Jesus hangs there on the cross, even there they won't give him rest. But they begin to cry out and mock him. And they say, he trusts in God. Let God deliver him now. For he said, I am the son of God. And God delights in me. They said, he's getting exactly what he deserves. Those walking by shake their heads at him and hurl abuse at him. This is what he gets. He dies as a condemned criminal. And that's exactly what he deserved. At least so it was thought. And yet Isaiah emphasizes in verses 4 through 6, in verse 8, in verses 11 through 12, the servant wasn't getting what he deserved. <coughs> the servant was getting what we deserved. Surely our griefs he himself bore, our sorrows he carried. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Verse 8, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? Uh, verse verse eleven and twelve. As a result of the anguish of my soul, he will uh, anguish of his soul. He will see it and be satisfied. And by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great. He will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sins of many and interceded for the transgressors. He said, we looked at him and we said, you're stricken, you're stricken of God. You're getting what you deserve. But he said, no, that's not true. He's getting what we deserved. And in graphic terms, Isaiah depicts, this is what we deserve. This is what we expected to get. And yet God showed us mercy. And isn't that what we talked about in Isaiah 1? God has sent some type of wrath or judgment upon the people. And, and yet in Isaiah 1 and verse 9, he has been merciful. He has not dealt with them as their sins deserved. And now ultimately he refuses, he refuses to deal with them in the same way. 
I want you to notice 53 and verse 5 and 53 and verse 10. The servant is depicted as crushed in both of those instances. 53.5, he was crushed for our iniquities. 53.10, the Lord was pleased to crush him. Okay, So the servant is depicted as being crushed on behalf of the people. You see, back in Isaiah chapter 1, Isaiah chapter 1 in verse 28, this is what God was going to do to the wicked people of the land. He was going to crush them. In Isaiah 1 in verse 28, when he depicts this, this revival in the land, this restoration that God wants to bring about, he says in verse 28, but transgressors and sinners will be crushed together and those who forsake the Lord will come to an end. Those who have forsaken God, those who have failed to obey God, they're the ones who are going to be crushed. But in Isaiah 53, instead of those who are sinful and wicked being crushed, it's the servant who is crushed. You see, he takes the judgment on himself. That should have befallen us. The servant is clearly innocent. Isaiah 53 in verse 9. And yet the people are far from innocent. Read Isaiah 1. Read Isaiah 5. Read Isaiah 59. Read Isaiah 57, which interestingly, in verse 4, rebukes them for being full of rebellion and deceit. And yet Isaiah 53, in verse 9, the servant has no deceit in his mouth. The very things that the servant is described as being innocent in, the people are described as being guilty in. And yet God, God has mercy and pours out his wrath upon his son rather than upon the people. <coughs> How will the servant take all of this suffering? Verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before his shears, so he did not open his mouth. Why stated he doesn't speak? I don't know about you, but I am, I am not a silent sufferer. Even when I get sick, Haley can attest to this, I, I need a lot of sympathy, you know. So I, I, I constantly have to remind my wife how, how sick I am. Uh, you know, I'm crying out, I'm moaning, I'm, I'm yelling, just anything to get a little bit of sympathy. There's no silent suffering here. I want everybody to know that I'm sick. I want everybody to feel sorry for me, at least. And, and if I experience some injustice, I can almost promise you that I would not be silent about it. I, I, would, I would demand my rights. I, I, I would demand that something be done. I would want people to hear me. Yet if there was a, the greatest injustice of all time was what they did to Jesus. And he responds by enduring it silently. He didn't need to appeal to a judge. He could have appealed to the Father and sent 12 legions of angels they could have destroyed the world right then and there and been done with this. 
yet he suffers silently. When you read the gospel accounts, Matthew and Mark in particular, those particular authors try to present Jesus as the silent sufferer. Jesus never really speaks in his trial. Oh, false accusations are made and he just stands there. Things are said about him, he doesn't respond. Even sometimes Pilate says, answer me, right? And, and he'll just throw out a few words. Everyone says, it's as you said. Whatever. He doesn't respond. He doesn't speak. Matthew and Mark are depicting Jesus as this silent sufferer. This one who is experiencing so much wrong and yet suffer silently, submitting to what the Father has said and doing what is commanded of him. Other gospel accounts like John depict Jesus speaking much more because he's depicting Jesus in a different light. But Matthew and Mark clearly have Isaiah 53 and verse 7 in mind when they write because there are hardly any words in the mouth of Jesus throughout his trial other than just a few brief statements that are made in passing. The gospel writers depict Jesus as this silent sufferer who endured much wrong on behalf of the people and yet refused to open its mouth, refused to argue or complain, but simply accepted what happened. Isn't it a shame when injustice happens in our world <coughs> We are often outraged by injustice. We think, why can't injustice be stopped? I want you to notice verse 10. All of this was happening because the will of the Lord. In verse 10, but the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, the Lord was pleased to crush him. It's a terrible thing when an innocent <coughs> person suffers, but there was no one more innocent than Jesus. And this all happens because of the will of God, not outside of it. Remember the prayers that Jesus prays in the garden. In Matthew 26 and verse 39, your will be done. He comes back in verse 42 and says, your will be done. If there's any other way, it, it would be great, it would be wonderful, but Father, your will be done. It was the Father's will to crush him that he experienced this chastisement on behalf of others. John Lennox, a mathematician who I believe teaches uh, at um, Oxford, said this, In the cross of Christ, God has not remained distant from our human suffering, but has become a part of it. You see, often we whine and we complain about innocent suffering God, don't you see? God, don't you understand? Jesus knows what it means to suffer innocently. Jesus knows what that experience is right, is like. But what did he do? 
He kept entrusting himself to the one who could deliver him and who would deliver him in the final day. Jesus understands suffering. He understands your pain. He understands an innocent suffering. He experienced all of that and more. And yet, he simply kept entrusting himself to the Father. Father, right all of the wrongs in the future. Father, take care of all of them. He simply had the faith to leave it in his Father's hands, who he knew had his best interest at heart. And likewise, we recognize the same about our God, who has our best interest in heart. Thankfully, though, the picture of Isaiah 53, 11 and 12, it doesn't end in despair, and it doesn't end in death. The end is a triumphant end. You see, we start off in verse 13. My servant will prosper. Wonderful. That's good news, right? He'll be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. More good news. And then the next thing we learn is his appearance will be marred more than any other man. And his form more than the sons of men. That's really, really bad news, isn't it? And the description of the rest of the chapter is suffering, pain, sorrow, and yes, even death. And there is no mistaking it. The servant dies. In 53, in verse 7, he is like a lamb led to the slaughter. In Isaiah 53, in verse 8, he's cut off from the land of the living. In Isaiah 53, in verse 9, his grave is assigned with the ridge, which again, I think, you know, you look in Matthew 27, 57, Joseph of Arimathea, he's a rich man. Matthew's the only gospel that points that out, I think, fulfilled in Jesus. But, but he's, he's buried with the rich in verse 9. In verse 10, he's a guilt offering. All of these things clearly depict death. Every verse, 7, 8, 9, 10. Death, 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 death. But start looking in verse 10. The middle part of verse 10. His days will be prolonged. Wait a minute, I, I thought he just died. Well, his days are not going to be prolonged in verse 10. In verse 11, he's going to see the result of his suffering. How's a dead man going to see the result of his suffering? Verse 11. Verse 12, he will have a portion with the great and divide the booty with the strong. How is that possible? You see, in a very, very subtle way, Isaiah depicts this one who has come, who has given himself on behalf of the people, who has suffered on their behalf. He pictures him as overcoming and rising for his days to be prolonged, for his victory to be realized. And in verse 12, to recognize that he has conquered and that he has defeated. The chapter closes not on a sad note, but on a triumphant note, which is the same way the story of Jesus closes, isn't it? After Jesus' death, the disciples are, are disheartened. Luke 24, two men walking on the road to Emmaus, and they, they run into Jesus. They don't know who it is. And they say, uh, he says, what are the things that you're talking about? And they say, are you the only one in Jerusalem who doesn't know these things that have occurred? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth.
Nazareth. He was great in power and in spirit. And we thought he was going to be the one who would deliver Israel. But now, now there's just no hope. There's so much despair for the disciples and for the women after Jesus' death. And yet, Jesus' story doesn't end in despair. It doesn't end in death. It ends with him conquering the grave. With him saying, touch me, here I am. Feel the wounds in my hand. Touch them, feel the wounds in my side. Give me something to eat. I'm here, I'm alive, I've overcome the grave. And that's great news, brothers and sisters, because if Jesus overcame the grave, that means John chapter 5, in that final day, all graves will be empty and we will all overcome the grave and we will all experience, we'll all experience that victory with him. The suffering servant dies on behalf of the people, yet his end is victorious. As he conquers death, he deals with the problems of the people by conquering sin and death. And praise God that he did. Praise God for such a Savior. Because if he conquered sin and death, we can look forward to, on that final day, being resurrected and spending eternity with him. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and life. He who believes in me will live, even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Bow with me. O oh Lord, we are humbled by the gift of your Son. We are humbled by your love for us. We do not know what to say when such grace has been shown to us. Lord, we, we ask that you give us the strength to follow you, that we remember to continually entrust ourselves to you for ultimate justice, that we simply cry out to you and turn to you in our times of trial and need. Lord, we thank you so much for being our Redeemer and Savior. We ask, O oh Lord, that we live in a manner worthy of that calling. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. When you look at Isaiah 53, a powerful example of what the prophets look forward to. Not God sending a prophet, but God himself coming in order to suffer on behalf of the people. What a powerful passage. 
that causes us to remember the death of our Savior and to look forward to His return. If there are any in the audience who have not made their life right with the Lord, we urge you, take this time, take this opportunity to do, accept this amazing grace <coughs> that has been given you. And if we can help you in any way, we urge you to come forward as we stand and sing.